Good morning, family of God. I'm so glad to worship the Lord with you in this space this morning. You know, in the providence of God, many of our church family are scattered worshiping the Lord at various lakes on this Labor Day weekend. God, you can worship God at the lake, can't you, church? And uh, some are in the kitchen right now getting food ready for us to serve us as we have first Sunday lunch here in a minute. Maybe we should clap our appreciation for them. They may hear us all the way from the kitchen. But for those of us who are in here, I trust that God wants to speak something special to us today. Do you want to hear from the Lord today? All right, well, let's bow our heads one more time. And I know we just prayed for the good work that Hilltop Clinic is doing. But let's pray again that God will help us to hear his word. And then I'm going to dive into this text with you. Our Father in heaven, it is our deep desire that we and all the world could see how good and great you are. It's our deep desire to worship you and to love you and to obey you and to live with you forever. And Lord, we know that we need grace. We need you to forgive our sins. We need you to cleanse us. We need you to empower us by your Holy Spirit. And I ask for a special grace even in this moment now. For those of us in this room, those who may be joining us on live stream, those who will listen to the message later, those who are in children's church right now, those who are hearing a sermon in Spanish in our chapel, um, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Please give us minds that are attentive to understand your word, to remember your word, to be transformed by grace as we meditate on your word. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. So if we went home this evening or any evening and turned on the evening news, it's fairly predictable what kinds of things we would see, isn't it? On the evening news, there would be some news stories about political drama. There's always a story about political drama. Very often there's a story about a natural disaster. We live in a world marked by all kinds of chaos and storms and things like that. Very often there's a story about war somewhere in the world. There's lots of stories about crime. The evening news can have a negative effect on us psychologically. It can also remind us that we live in a world that is marred by sin and in need of redemption. Amen. Frequently, though, on the evening news, in the midst of all those stories that are telling us about the brokenness of the world, there will be a story stuck in there that sometimes we call the feel-good story. And the purpose of that story is to make you feel good. (laughs) That's why we call it that. And it reminds you that there's some hope for humanity. Often it'll be about something like some good work that a nonprofit is doing in the community, some people that are volunteering at a medical clinic or a homeless shelter to help those in need. It could be about a lot of different things. Last week, there's probably some of them about the peace walk, showing some of you guys walking around, praying for peace in a divided world. But very often, there will be a story about some individual who was just going through their life, and they saw another person or group of people in a dire situation, and something got turned on inside of this individual, and they jumped in to help, 
and risk themselves in order to help another person in need, a perfect stranger in need. Now you see where I'm going with this. On the news, they call that person a good what? They call that person a good Samaritan. It's very common on the news to hear people say those words. And I did a little experiment in my office on Friday. I typed, opened up Google and typed in good Samaritan. And the the first thing that pops up is all the Bible verses and articles that have been written about our text, Luke chapter 10. But then if you click on Google, you know, the news filter that shows you all the recent headlines. Just in the previous 48 hour, here's some of the headlines. This was Friday I did this. So on that morning, there was a headline in Tennessee. Wilmar officers credit Good Samaritan for helping life of uh, fairgoer. I don't know what happened, but somebody went to a fair. It went sideways. And we know what that means. A stranger saw the problem, jumped in. And helped, right? The day before that, on August 31st, had this headline in Rhode Island. Man saved by Good Samaritan amid dangerous rip currents at Rhode Island beaches. That same day, here's a headline from Pennsylvania. He was the hero. That was in quotes. Colon. Good Samaritan saved state trooper struck by car on Parkway West. The day before, August 30th, in Florida, this headline. Florida Good Samaritan helps driver... Stuck in Hurricane Idalia flood water. The day before, this is going back to what? Wednesday, Tuesday now. In, Lu- in uh, Louisiana. After Good Samaritan shot, breaking up Kenner fight, gunman sentenced to 10 years. That one was a little more depressing. But all, all of them are using that word Good Samaritan. And those were all within 72 hours. And that's just a few of the headlines I picked up. It's interesting to think about the significance of those headlines. Think about what it means. If I did it again this week on Friday or if you did it on Wednesday, you would find the same thing all over the country, all over the world. Headlines about perfect strangers risking themselves to help another person in need. And people would describe it as a good Samaritan. A good Samaritan. As Christians, I think we should be encouraged by that phenomenon in a couple of ways. One, even though the world is broken by sin People are still made in the image of God. Amen. And oh, that was a I need some more amens there, church. (laughs) People are still made in the image of God. Is there hope in the world, church? People are made in the image of God. And and every now and then, though we hurt each other, sometimes in the, the darkest moments of life, we see the good and people get activated. Maybe these many of these people were believers who knew the Lord and were full of the Holy Spirit. But even if not, they're made in the image of God. They have a capacity to shine forth something of the goodness of God into the world. They're sacrificing themselves for the good of other people. That's encouraging. I also think about the fact that the reason journalists keep putting those two words, Good Samaritan, in the headline is because we know what it means. Not just Christians who go to church. People who haven't darkened the door of a church in years. People who have never read Luke chapter 10 hear those words, good Samaritan, and they know, oh, a stranger did something nice. They risked themselves for somebody. An atheist or an agnostic or somebody from another world religion can read that headline and know what it means, which is telling us something about the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus told a story, and that story had such power that all over the world today, it's still impacting the imaginations of human beings and how we think about how to be human in the world. Isn't that awesome? The teaching of Jesus has power. However, this phenomenon, the way we use the word all the time, also has the potential 
to make us over familiar with the story. So that we miss something of the beauty and power of the story because we don't see just how radical and provocative it really was. See, when Jesus first hearers heard him tell this story, when they heard the word Samaritan, did not think a good neighbor. They did not think when they hear Samaritan, they don't think a stranger did something wonderful to sacrifice himself for the good of another. In fact, when the lawyer Jesus is talking to or even when his disciples hear the word Samaritan, what they think of is enemy. That's what they think. The Samaritans were people who were separated by them from from the Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus disciples were Jews. The people who love Jesus were Jews. The people who don't like Jesus in the story were Jews. And the Samaritans were separated from the Jews by a lot of history. We talked about some of that a few weeks ago. And the reason we were talking about it is because a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tried to pass through the Samaritans and the Samaritans rejected Jesus. Think about this story falling where it does. Just right before this, the Samaritans rejected Jesus. And now Jesus tells a story in which a Samaritan is the hero. Think about that for a second. The Samaritans rejected Jesus and then the disciples of Jesus, if you recall, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy the Samaritans. And Jesus rebuked them because they didn't get it. They didn't get what he was about. But what we talked about was Jews and Samaritans have a history which can can be traced way back when when it begins is difficult to say. It can go back at least to the time, really, to the time of Rehoboam, son of Solomon and the the. Splitting of the southern and northern tribes of the people of Israel. And then over long years of history, the tribes of Israel were alienated from one another through war, through sin, through violence. And exile happened. The the northern tribes were carried off. The southern tribes were carried off. Many of those from the southern tribes, the region of Judah and Jerusalem, returned eventually. But they remained alienated from those northern tribes who intermarried with pagan people. And many of them now are settled in this area of Samaria. And they were viewed not only as ethnic outsiders and political rivals, but as heretics. These people are supposed to be faithful to the Lord, but they teach heresy. They deny a lot of the Bibles that they don't worship God at Jerusalem. They've made up all their own traditions. They were the bad guys. So when Jesus says Samaritan, they're thinking those people who are what is wrong with the world. Which means, if you want to hear how radical this story is, you have to do something uncomfortable, which is to be honest with yourself. When you think, what kind of people are the problem in the world today? Don't say this out loud. Don't answer it out loud. But in your head, be honest. What kind of people are the problem in the world today? Something pops into your mind. Might have to do with their political ideology. It could be an ethnic group that you have bitterness towards. Could be a religious group or an irreligious group. There's all sorts of things. But just when you hear Jesus tell the story, put put them in the hero slot. That's what he's doing here. He's doing something radical and he's doing something radical, which is teaching them about the nature of the kingdom of God. Jesus has been saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the king who's bringing God's rule of power to heal the world. And he's saying, 
You need to hear this story to think about what does it mean that the kingdom of God is coming. With that in mind, I want to back up now, walk through the, our text and just just notice some of the radical things that Jesus is saying. Let's go all the way back to verse 25. By the way, you've probably noticed that our staff every now and then as just kind of a brilliant move, will put the wrong text in the bulletin just to remind you it's a good idea to bring your Bible to church. But uh, if you didn't catch it, the text, Luke 10, starting in verse 25, is what's supposed to be in there. You can follow along on the screen if you didn't put the, uh, if you uh, don't have your Bible with you. But look at verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, is a question that would be a normal question for one Jewish teacher to ask another Jewish teacher. And it's a good question. We could paraphrase it. Who are the real people of God? Who are the real people of God? Who are the blessed people who inherit God's promises to Israel? Who are the ones that are going to be on God's side when the kingdom of God comes to set everything right? A few verses before this, Jesus had said to his disciples, your names are written in heaven. We could paraphrase that. You are the heirs of eternal life. And so now the teacher is asking, so who are the real people of God? Who will inherit eternal life? If we were going to ask the same question today in our cultural situation, we might say, who is saved? Who are the real Christians? Who will inherit eternal life? You think that's an important question, church? It's an important question. It's a good question. And he came to the right place. Jesus is the one who knows. Who's a citizen of the kingdom of God? It's a good question, but Luke's language suggests that it may not have been asked with a good motive. That little word, tests. Put him to the test. This man, he's called a lawyer, but he's not the kind of lawyer that we think about. He's an expert in the Torah and the Jewish law. So he's a Bible scholar. He's a scribe. And when it says he came to test them, we could interpret that in a somewhat positive light. He's coming. He's heard about the reputation of Jesus and he's coming to see if Jesus really is wise because he wants to know uh, true God's wisdom. true he wisdom. Maybe, and he thinks he's the source. But probably that's not what Luke means here. Probably it means this guy is coming uh, to evaluate Jesus because he thinks he's got the right answers and he's worried about Jesus not being a good teacher. So probably we should read this with a neutral to negative connotation. This guy is here to evaluate Jesus. Verse 26 then says that Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus responds to the question with a question. Again, this is something that would be very common in this kind of exchange between Jewish teachers at the time. Nothing unusual there. Something that good teachers often do. You ask them a question and they respond with a question. But here I think there's a special significance because something that we see in the gospel so often is people come to Jesus to size up Jesus, to test Jesus, to evaluate Jesus. And often they have an experience that you may have experienced before. Anybody ever come to test Jesus, to evaluate Jesus, and then you left that encounter feeling like Jesus was evaluating you? I think this is often what happens. We, we put ourselves in the position of the judge and say, we're going to see if you pass the trial. And often we come to him. He's not judgmental. He's filled with grace and love. But in fact, he is the righteous judge. And often he responds to us in a way that shows us 
who we really are. So Jesus responds to the law. What do you think? How do you read the scriptures? What do you see written in the law? Verse 27. And he, the lawyer, answered. And he quotes here from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. The lawyer says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes two scriptures. If you are a student of the Gospels, you'll know that in other places, Jesus has similar conversations and Jesus quotes these same two scriptures. Jesus wasn't unique in quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus 19, uh, 18 to say these are the most important commandments in the law of God. Love God. Everybody say love God. We've we got we to gotta work on this this morning. Church. Everybody say love God. Thank you, sir. Everybody say love your neighbor. And uh, Jesus says you nailed it. You got it right. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 28. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. The way of love is the way of life. Citizens of God's kingdom are people who love God and love their neighbors. It's a simple question. Sometimes Christian teachers, when they run into this passage, start worrying about is Jesus teaching that we're saved by our good works instead of being saved by grace? And the short answer to that question is no. We're going to need radical grace from God in three ways if we're going to apply this text to our lives. But I'm not going to tell you to the end of the sermon. So you've got to stay with us if you want to know those three ways. But for now, just notice the simple point Jesus is making. Yes, the true people of God are, in fact, people who love God and love their neighbors. And that could have been the end of the conversation. But verse 29 says, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. And I encourage you to underline those words. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer isn't satisfied with Jesus saying, you answered right. Do this and you will live. Seeking to justify himself. Again, we could put a positive spin on that. That could mean he really wants to be sure that he's right with God, that he's living in a righteous way. And he feels tormented. He's been trying to obey God's law, but he keeps feeling like he's falling short. He keeps feeling like something's missing. He wants to go deeper and he's sincerely seeking instruction from Jesus. Maybe that's what it means, but probably not. Probably what it means is the lawyer came to score points in an argument. And Jesus doesn't seem interested in that. So he just said, no, you've got the right answer, actually. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, that's the way to go. And now he's trying to come out of this looking like the smart guy. He needs to ask Jesus a deep question that Jesus can't answer to his satisfaction. So he says, who is my neighbor? Now, this question is the rub. Who is my neighbor? Here's the thing. The command, love your neighbor as yourself, is from Leviticus 19. And if you read that, Leviticus 19, verse 18, if you read it in its immediate context... It's talking about how to relate to your fellow Israelites. And there's even moments where it says it it basically defines the neighbor as your fellow Israelite. And so many Jewish teachers at the time interpreted it that way and say, love your neighbor. That means your fellow Jews and hate your enemy like the Romans or the Samaritans. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, ignoring lots of things, including the wider context, even in Leviticus 19. Where God says, love the sojourner, love the stranger, love the foreigner among you, love the ethnic minority, 
Love those who are different than you. Not to mention so many other places in the scripture that describe God's love for all nations and call on the people of Israel to imitate their God. But here's the thing. Jewish teachers at the time of Jesus could quote this, these two commandments and say, here's the mark of a faithful believer in God. You love God with everything you are and you love your neighbor as yourself. And what that means is you keep kosher, you honor the Sabbath, you go to synagogue and you're loyal to your fellow Jews. In the same way, many Christians today could quote these two verses, say the mark of a true Christian. We love God and we love our neighbor. And what we think that means is something like go to church, pay your tithes and offerings Read your Bible, pray, perhaps don't have sex with the wrong people, and be nice to other Christians. And still really miss the heart of the gospel. We could think all of that. So Jesus responds with the famous story. Let's just read it again. Let's read the story. And as we go, I'm going to point out a few things and ask you to think about a few things. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, friends, Jesus teaches us in parables for many reasons, but stories engage our imaginations. They engage our hearts. They ask us both to think and to feel. So I'm going to ask you to engage your imagination for a second, okay? Imagine you're this man from Jerusalem. You can imagine yourself to be a woman from Jerusalem if that's easier. And you're traveling on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Understand that traveling probably means traveling on foot. Um, there's not highway patrols zooming up and down the highway all the time. This is a particularly treacherous road that's known for being dangerous, which is why often if people are going to travel that road, they're going to travel in groups for safety. But this person is traveling alone and the thing that people fear happens to him. So imagine the scene. You're walking down the road and all of a sudden a group, a large group of angry looking people come out and you know you're in big trouble. So you start trying to think how to bargain what you can give them to preserve your life. But you've got nothing because they want that that can buy them off because they're just going to take everything you've got. So they start attacking you and they beat you and they take everything you have. It says, including his clothes, clothes were expensive. Many of the people in this community were very poor. They'd only have maybe one change of clothes. So they take everything. They beat him. Any money he had, it's gone. If he wasn't on foot, if he was on a donkey or something, that's gone, too. And he's left there. It says half dead probably means if you're imagining yourself in this position, fading in and out of consciousness, exposed. Can you imagine it? It's hard to imagine being much more vulnerable than that. You've got nobody with you. There's no cell phones. Totally exposed. Totally vulnerable, totally helpless. And then you start to hear footsteps coming down the road. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A priest is supposed to represent God to the people and he's supposed to represent the people to God. But God is a God of compassion. God is a God of mercy. God is a God who comes near to the brokenhearted and helps them. So we should expect at this point that the priest is going to help. 
But the text said he didn't. Now, I want you to imagine this both from the perspective of the man from Jerusalem and from the perspective of the priest. If you're the man from Jerusalem fading in and out of consciousness, hurting, and you hear footsteps, there may be fear triggered, but also hope. Perhaps, perhaps this person will help me. Perhaps I will live. And if you happen to have enough strength to turn your head and see a priest, you think, thank you, God. My prayers are answered because you know that in your lucid moments you were praying, God, help me. God, help me. Send an angel. Send somebody to help me. You wouldn't have prayed send a good Samaritan because this story had never been told. But you would have prayed, God, send somebody to help me. And now you see a priest and you think maybe this is it. And imagine the crushing disappointment when he crosses to the far side of the road to keep as far from you as possible and keeps walking. Now let's imagine it from the priest's perspective. Why does he do this? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, there's many reasons to do this, aren't there? Helping other people can be terribly painful and inconvenient. Helping other people can cost a lot. Helping other people can be... Uh, can, can mess up your day, it can mess up your weekend, it can mess up your week. Maybe he doesn't have that much money. He's thinking about his own responsibilities to provide for his family. In addition to that, we already know this is a dangerous road, and here's a man that was robbed, left here half dead. If I slow down and stick around to help him, what's going to happen to me? Perhaps the same robbers are still lurking behind a rock somewhere. I need to get out of here. Or I could be in danger. The text said the man was half dead, which means he may not even be able to tell if he's alive or not. By the way, as a priest, uh, he's not supposed to touch dead people because that would make him ritually unclean. So he can't fulfill his priestly duties. So if he can't tell if he's dead or alive, he may be thinking, if I go over there and try to help him, there's a good chance I won't even be able to help him because he's probably dead no matter what. And then I'm going to be unclean and not be able to do my duties. He, he has a lot of things going through his mind. The priest here does not look good in this story. But can we be honest that a lot of times a lot of us have just faced the reality I could help this person. But that's going to cost a lot. And I don't know if I want it. We've all felt that way. The priest walks on by. Then comes a Levite. Same thing happens. A Levite was not a priest. But he also was charged with helping to care for the temple and was supposed to be a spiritual leader. He passes on by. And then verse 33, a Samaritan came. Remember in the story, a Samaritan equals a bad guy. A Samaritan equals the people we think are wrong with the world. The ethnic outsider, the religious outsider, the political outsider. But when he comes, he came to where he was. It says when he saw him, he had compassion. Now everybody say saw him. Everybody say compassion. Those are important words. And in the gospel, those words are often used of Jesus. We often read Jesus saw people and then he had compassion on them. We can ask the question, did the priest and the Levite see this man? And on one level, the answer is clearly yes, because they took the trouble to walk to the other side of the road. So as not to risk becoming contaminated by him in one way or another. We know that they saw him, but then we could ask the question, but did they really see him? Did they see his humanity? Did they see him as someone bearing the image of God? Did they imagine what it was like to be him? Did they think this human might have a daughter or a son? They think this person might have a wife, a mother, a father. This person might have a business. People whose livelihoods depend on him. Waiting for him to get back. 
Did they imagine what he was feeling when he heard their footsteps? Did they really see him? Jesus saw people. The Samaritan saw him and he had compassion. We talked a lot about this word a few months ago and talked about compassion is not really actually the same thing as empathy, but it means seeing another person in pain and difficulty and valuing them as a human being so much that you love them in a way that you're willing to get involved. You're willing to engage your actions in your life in order to help them be better. That's what the man does. And if you want to know what compassion looks like, you can read verse 34. I'm going to pause before I read verse 34 and ask the guys in the back to put our picture on the screen. If you came and helped with StoryQuest a few months ago, or if your kids came to StoryQuest, you were familiar with this picture. By the way, StoryQuest was awesome. Chauncey and our school's leadership team did an amazing camp this summer for our kids. They practiced literacy skills and reading comprehension. They practiced creative writing. They also studied art and made art. And the piece of artwork that they studied was this picture by Vincent van Gogh. If you don't know, know, Vincent van Gogh, Gogh, in addition to being one of the greatest impressionist painters, was a very spiritually sensitive soul and a man deeply troubled by mental illness. And one year after having two mental breakdowns in the same year and getting kicked out of his town because he was so difficult to deal with, some of his friends helped him to get into an asylum where he could get medical care. And while he was there... He painted from memory this replica in his own style of another painting of this of this story of the Good Samaritan. And as you listen to the story, you can look at the picture. You see a treasure chest lying at the side of the road empty. Whatever money this guy had is gone. You see that he's been stripped of his clothes. You can see if you look closely to the backs of two men walking away, presumably representing the priest and the Levite. And you can see here the the absolute weakness and dependence of the man from Jerusalem, perhaps representing something about how Vincent van Gogh himself felt at this time. He was battling serious mental illness. He felt totally weak. The man from Jerusalem, it appears that all the strength he can muster is to loosely hold on to the guy who's trying to help him. That's all he can do. But really, he can't do that. It's, it's the strength of the man helping him who's getting bowed down under his weight, which is his only hope. With that in your mind, look at verse 34. We can keep the picture on the screen. See, this is why you got to have your Bible. Verse 34 says, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Used for medicinal purposes to clean out the wound. But they were also costly. To pour out oil and wine on the men's wounds is to pay a price. That's going to cost a Samaritan something. Then he set him on his own animal. And as this painting depicts, that itself wasn't easy to do. do. Can you imagine imagine a grown man, prone, with no strength, trying to get him up on your animal? You see him bent back with that physical labor here. Anybody who's ever tried to change a tire on the side of the highway knows, especially in the August, Oklahoma August, that can be exhausting. And he puts him on his animal and takes him to an inn. And then verse 35 says the next day, meaning he's invested at least one whole day in this guy, but he plans to invest more because he's going to come back and check on him. He took out two denarii. He's paying a price and he gives it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you need, you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus ends the story with another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Did you notice the subtle way in which Jesus reframed the lawyer's question? The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? 
Who is my neighbor? The intent behind that question is to clarify which people am I obligated to be good to? And which people do I not have to be good to? Jesus flips the script here in several different ways, not only by taking the enemy and making him the hero. By taking the heretic and the spirit, the ethnic outsider and saying, imitate his life. But also he flips the script because he doesn't ask or answer who is my neighbor. He asks which one proved to be a neighbor. In other words, the question is being reframed. It's not which people am I obligated to help, but am I the kind of person who responds to others with the compassion and mercy of God? What kind of person am I? Am I a neighbor? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. Everybody say mercy. He saw the man. He had compassion on the man. He had mercy on the man. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. What does this story mean for us today? What do we do with it? I want to suggest to you three things about what it means for us today. The first one is very simple. Exactly what Jesus said to the lawyer. Imitate the Samaritan. Imitate the Samaritan. Have mercy on others like the Samaritan did. Be compassionate to other people like the Samaritan did. And I want to reiterate what we said a second ago. To feel what what this means, you have to replace the Samaritan in the story with somebody whom you think of as one of the bad people. The time of Jesus, like our time, was a time of polarization, a time of tribalism, a time of deep divisions, a time of deep resentment. And people were always trying to get Jesus to fit into their party, into their tribe, into their group, or to show that he didn't so that they could destroy him and oppose him and brand him an enemy. And Jesus is doing something entirely different. So I want you to do the uncomfortable exercise again. Think in your mind. If you think, what kind of people are the problem with the world? Get, get the picture in your head. And Jesus tells a story in which that person acts in the way that God wants humans to act. and says, imitate him. Imitate him. He's teaching us compassion. He's teaching us mercy. But he's doing it in a way that by implication seems to be saying the kingdom of God is erupting around us all over the place in surprising ways that do not fit our categories. And if we're blinded by our own narrow tribalism, we will miss the kingdom of God. If we're blinded by our own categories of who the good guys are and the bad guys are, we will hate people that God has called us to love. And if you didn't get the full implication, there is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer is everybody, everybody. So in case you everybody turn to your neighbor, say, love everybody, love everybody, love everybody. That's the call here. Love everybody. But Jesus is. Flipping the script on us in a way to challenge us to think, who are the ones that we have the most difficult time loving? And then not just saying love them, but telling a story in which they're the heroes and say love like they're loving. This is radical. This is deep. He's saying so many of us are missing the reality of God's presence among us because we're too busy trying to define the boundaries in which God will work. But instead, open our hearts to his love, which breaks through all of our human boundaries. Now, with that in mind, I got to tell you my problem with this story. Can I be honest? Thanks for that nod. I appreciate that. 
Here's my problem with this story. Every day of my life, I encounter hundreds of people who need help. It can be very overwhelming. Sometimes, uh, I'm on my way to try and help somebody else, because I think it's what Jesus wants me to do. But on the way there, I pass five or six people asking for help on the side of the road, plus hundreds of people who aren't asking for help, but who have their own deep and desperate needs. It can feel overwhelming. I'm being honest to you. Anybody else been there? It can feel overwhelming. And I can start to think, I mean, this, this parable, the Holy Spirit can bring it to my mind, sometimes in very helpful ways, challenging ways. It's easy to be like the priest and the Levite and start trying to protect myself by asking the question, which of these people am I obligated to help and I can go home feeling good about myself and which ones can I ignore so that I can help the other ones and still go home feeling like a good Christian? I'm just being honest. Just being honest. Sometimes I felt that way. This is my problem with the story. Jesus in his grace, though, flips the question. If, if I'm asking which of these people am I obligated to help, I'm already missing something of the heart of the kingdom of God. Jesus flips the question from who is my neighbor to Am I the kind of person who responds to human needs with compassion and mercy as God has done for me? That last part is key. Have I experienced the compassion and mercy of God in a way that fills my heart with his mercy and compassion? So I'm not worried about trying to define who am I obligated to help. It's really the question is, Jesus, where's the invitation? Who are you calling me to help today? Jesus helped some people and didn't help other people when they asked for help. He was tuned into who his father was calling him to love, but it's a different question. Not who, who am I obligated to help and who can I not get away with not helping and still feel good about myself? Is, is my heart experienced the mercy and compassion of God such that I want to respond to everybody and I'm trying to tune in with prayer to discern God, which are the ones you've called me to be your hands and feet for today? Now, this leads us to the second point I want us to take away, which is to recognize that at a very deep level, though, Jesus is the Samaritan and I'm the man from Jerusalem. And if I haven't learned to hear the story that way, I'm going to have a hard time imitating the Samaritan. Many of the early Christians read it this way. Famously, St. Augustine, when he preached on this text, his primary message was not Everybody go treat your neighbors right. His primary message was you were bleeding on the side of the road. And Jesus came and rescued you. He didn't make that up. He got it from his teacher, Ambrose of Milan. And Christians going all the way back to origin in the second century had been preaching this text this way. They had all sorts of imaginative, exciting, allegorical ways of reading the text. But I just want you to really simply see the gospel here. All of us are people going down the journey of life, helpless and confused, trying to get to our destination and then getting beat up. Amen. You can relate to that. We get beat up by the devil. We get beat up by our own sin. We get beat up by other people's sin. And we find ourselves desperately in need of a savior. And most of the world passes us by either because they cannot help or they're unwilling to help. And then there came one man who was like this in the story. Do you see yourself in the beat up, tired, exhausted guy who can't save himself? Then that's Jesus putting you on his donkey. Jesus came. Jesus took time. time. Jesus paid a price. Jesus went to the cross and died in order to rescue us and rose again so that we could be set free. And those early Christians, when they read this story, would say, 
See the gospel. You're the man on the side of the road. Like the Samaritan, Jesus was misunderstood by the religious leaders of his time. Like the Samaritan, Jesus was an outsider. Like the Samaritan, Jesus paid every price in order that we could live. And reading it that way takes us out of the realm of legalism legalism and into the realm of grace. Into the realm of the gospel, which is the third thing I wanted to say. I promised before I left, I would tell you, you need, if you want to walk in the way of love, which is the way of life, you need grace from Jesus in three ways. And here they are. First of all, you need Jesus to forgive you for your lovelessness. Because if we're honest, there have been times in all of our lives where we've been more like the priest and the Levite than the Samaritan. All of us have harmed people. Sometimes we may have been like the robbers. We've hurt people. We've harmed people. But other times someone else has been hurt. And in our own pain, in our own weakness, in our own desire to protect ourselves, we've had a lack of love. We need the cross of Jesus. We need the forgiveness of Jesus to forgive us for our own lovelessness. And then we need him to pick us up, forgive us, heal us, and to teach us how to love because we really don't know. We're walking through life every day saying, okay, Jesus, teach me how to love. Teach me how to love. To show us what love looks like. And then, thirdly, we need him to give us the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this way. Forgive me for my lack of love. Teach me to love like you love. Empower me by, by, by your spirit to live love. And, and that's the way of life. That's what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm about to pray over you before we sing one last song of worship. And as, as I pray over you, I just want you, you can look at the screen if you want to, to keep this picture in your mind. Or you can close your eyes. But I want to invite you to, one more time to engage your imagination and ask the Holy Spirit to make the gospel real for you. And I just want to say to us, church family, we'll never learn to be like the Good Samaritan unless we first have learned that Jesus was like the Good Samaritan to come and rescue us. This text is not trying to beat you down saying you're not good enough. It's trying to say, of course, you're not good enough, but God is good enough. And he came to rescue you, to invite you into a new way of grace. So would you bow your heads now? Just imagine yourself in that situation. Imagine Jesus coming near to you. Imagining him bandaging your wounds. Imagining, imagine him. Picking you up, putting you on his donkey. Imagine him paying a price so that you can be healed, saying to you, I forgive you, I love you. I'm going to love you steadfastly. Our Father in heaven. As a community here, we just want to acknowledge our need. We are needy. We have physical needs. We have all sorts of mental and emotional needs. Our families have needs. Lord, we also have spiritual needs. We, we have sinned. We have failed to love as you love. And sometimes even just the radical call of love, it's a beautiful way of life you call it us to, but we're so tired that it feels overwhelming to us. So we just come to you and say, we're needy, we're needy. And God, we want to praise you now.
for being the God who came near to rescue us. Praise you for the cross of Jesus. Praise you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Praise you for the healing and the freedom that we have in Christ. Praise you that you bring us home. Where we can be healed and have new life. And Lord, as we experience your healing, I pray that we wouldn't get stuck in the law, which which uh, never had the power to change our hearts to love like this. But the radical experience of your grace would exercise its effect in us to open our eyes to see our neighbors like you do. Maybe those who are outside of our group, who we might be tempted to ignore or to hate, that we would see them in a new way. That we would have a heart of compassion and mercy towards them. And we would move towards them. And I want to pray this about our individual hearts and souls, but I want to pray it over us as a community. Thank you, Lord, as we were praying earlier for Hilltop Clinic and the work that it's done. And Lord, we know that none of us individually can be the hands and feet to all the thousands of neighbors with so many needs around us. But we pray that as a body, together with the rest of your body in this city, that your spirit would empower us to be the hands and feet of Jesus. To love like Jesus loves. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.